I believe that one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is keeping an eternal perspective. This world has so much pull on us. This life is very real to us, but the next life is very unreal to us most of the time. As a result, it is easy for us to get so caught up in this life that we fail to grasp the reality and the priority of the life to come. Surely you know what I'm describing. Just think about how many days or weeks can go by without you ever thinking about eternity or heaven or your next life. If we will be honest, there are often long periods of time that go by without us ever thinking about those realities. That's not healthy for us spiritually. James 4.14 says, For what is your life? It is even a vapor. That's all this life is. Compared to eternity, this life is just a vapor. It's like your breath on a cold winter day. When you breathe out, you can see your breath for just a moment, and then it's gone. That's what this life is like compared to eternity. We need to be reminded of that truth regularly to give us a proper perspective. Therefore, the writers of the New Testament regularly direct our thoughts to the future to help us maintain that eternal perspective. An eternal perspective counters the strong pull that this world naturally has on us. We see that truth present in the text we're going to consider this morning. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 4, over near the end of your New Testament, the little letter of 1 Peter. This morning we move into the fourth chapter of Peter's first epistle, so please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give, give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. As we saw a couple of messages ago in this series, in the third chapter of Peter's second epistle, he makes a comment about how the Apostle Paul has some sections of his letters that are difficult to understand or difficult to interpret. If you have been with us, for this series in 1 Peter, then you know that the same thing could be said about Peter's letters. He also writes some things that are hard to understand. 
We've seen that over the last couple of messages in the series as we have worked our way through the end of chapter 3 where Peter talks about Jesus making a proclamation to some spirits in prison. Having wrestled through that section of Peter's letter, we are immediately confronted with this text, which also has some more difficult sayings. For example, at the end of verse 1, there is the statement about ceasing from sin. What does that mean? Is it, is it possible to stop sinning in this life? Is it possible to cease sinning? That's one perplexing question we will have to deal with in this text before us. Another difficult statement occurs in verse 6 where Peter says, The gospel was preached also to those who are dead. What does that mean? Do people who have died get an opportunity to hear the gospel again? Do people get a second chance to be saved even after they have died? That's another perplexing question that we'll cover in this text before us. So even though Peter said that Paul's writings have some difficult passages to understand, Paul wasn't the only one. Paul didn't have a corner on difficult passages. Peter has his share also. With that in mind, let's jump into this passage before us to see what the Holy Spirit guided Peter to write. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The first thing to notice about this verse is that we have the word therefore right at the beginning. I know I have said this numerous times in the past, but I'm going to keep saying it because it is so important for effective, accurate Bible study, and it is this. Whenever you see a therefore or a wherefore, stop to see what it's there for. The fact that Peter has the word therefore in this verse tells us that he is connecting this thought with what he has just been saying at the end of chapter 3. Remember, there were no chapter divisions when Peter wrote this letter, just as you don't put chapter divisions in your letters to friends or family members. So verse 1 of chapter 4 is connected in thought with the end of chapter 3. As we saw over the last few messages in this First Peter series, the last half of chapter 3 is about suffering. And Peter's goal is to provide encouragement for those who are suffering. First Peter has a lot to say about suffering. Suffering has been the experience of God's people for centuries. So it is no wonder that there are many passages in the Word of God that address the subject of suffering. First Peter is just one example. In verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3, Peter has exhorted his readers and us by extension to make sure to maintain a good conscience and good behavior because any suffering we might experience should not be the result of wrongdoing on our part. If we suffer, it should not be for our wrongs or sins. It should only be because of our devotion to Christ. That's basically what he says in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3. Having given that exhortation in verses 13 through 17... Peter points to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. That is recorded in verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3. When Peter mentions the Lord Jesus in verse 18, it prompts him into a fascinating detour that can be very difficult to understand. 
because he talks about Jesus making a proclamation to spirits in prison, etc. And we, we unpacked all of that in a few messages back. However, remember, Peter's main purpose is to remind us that although we may suffer in this life, ultimately we will be victorious. Jesus suffered, the just for the unjust, and he was victorious. If we belong to him, we will be victorious. That's the central point of the final verses in chapter 3. But Peter brings in a lot of other issues along the way as he makes that central point. So let's not miss Peter's point. Peter says all of the things at the end of chapter 3 basically to remind us that although we may suffer in this life, ultimately we will be victorious. In fact, suffering can be the context for one's greatest triumph. The Lord Jesus is our example, Peter reminds us. He suffered severely. He suffered unjustly. But he was ultimately victorious. In the same way, those of us who are in him, those of us who belong to him, will also be victorious ultimately. So, Peter's point is, be faithful. Persevere. Endure. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. That's the message of the final verses in chapter 3. And we need to remember that because that leads right into what Peter says here in verse 1 of chapter 4, which is why he has the word, therefore. Therefore, in light of what I've just been saying in chapter 3 about Jesus being victorious and his followers also ultimately being victorious, therefore, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same mind or the same attitude. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Basically what Peter is saying here in verse 1 is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, don't be surprised if you have to suffer for belonging to him. Don't be surprised. Don't let it catch you off guard. He suffered. So those of us who belong to him also have to suffer sometimes. Be ready for it. Prepare your heart for it. Make sure you have the proper mindset about it. Be purposeful in how you think about it. That's what Peter is saying here in verse 1. And when it comes to being purposeful in your thinking, don't forget, Peter reminds us, don't forget that suffering can have a purifying effect in the life of a child of God. How is that the case? What does Peter mean by that? Well, look at it this way. If our suffering for Christ is so severe, in other words, if, our, if the persecution against us is so severe that it results in death, then that releases us from this life into heaven where we'll never sin again. If our suffering doesn't go that far or to that extent, it still can be positive in the sense that it can purge us from sin. That's what Peter means by the last phrase in verse 1. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If our suffering results in death, we will have completely ceased from sin. We'll sin no more. If our suffering is less than death, it can have a purifying effect in us so that sin is less of a part of our experience. 
And I'm sure if we had the time and the opportunity and just stopped right now and opened it up to testimonials, there could be any number of people here who could stand up and give testimony to the fact that, you know, I went through this in my life, this very difficult phase of suffering, and God used it in a remarkable way. God used it to purify my life, to draw me closer to Him. Whatever form of suffering, whatever form it takes, suffering can have a purifying effect in our lives. But it's important to understand that it is not automatic. What I mean is, there are some Christians who go through suffering or hard times, but they don't respond properly, and they actually run towards sin instead of away from sin. As I have often said in the past, there are some Christians who go through suffering and they come out better. There are others who go through suffering and they come out bitter. It's a fork in the road, really. It's a fork in the road. So when that happens, when a person doesn't become better or when a person doesn't draw closer to the Lord or when a person is not more purified and they run towards sin, when that happens, then it reveals the fact that the person had not done what Peter says to do in the early part of this verse. And what does he tell us to do? He tells us to arm ourselves with the same purpose as Christ, or the same attitude as Christ, the same perspective Christ had toward his suffering. So if we don't do what the first part of verse 1 says, arm ourselves for the battle, if we don't arm ourselves with the right purpose, the right attitude, the right perspective, then it is not going to follow that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's not going to have a purifying effect in your life. So Peter says, arm yourselves with the same mind. Peter's wording here reminds us, beloved, that we are in a war. Don't ever forget that. We are in a battle for the spiritual health of our souls. If you begin to coast, if you lose a wartime mentality, you will slip. That is why we must arm ourselves. If we do arm ourselves with the right attitude, with the right perspective, if we arm ourselves with the right purpose, then suffering can result in some positive purging benefits in our lives. And that's why Peter adds the next verse, verse 2. He says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. As a child of God, we should live for the will of God. We should live the way God wants us to live. But you know as well as I do that we don't always live that way. Instead of living the way God wants us to live, We often live the way our sin nature wants us to live or the way unsaved people want us to live. Both of those ideas are present in this verse. That is our natural tendency or leaning to go the route of our sin nature, to go the route that people want us to go, which is why in verse 1 Peter says, arm yourselves, arm your mind, get your perspective right, because then when you suffer it will have an effect of decreasing sin in your life. Our sin nature has a pull on us to live a certain way. And the peer pressure around us has a pull on us to live a certain way. But both of those are contrary to how God wants us to live. According to this verse and many other passages, His will for us is to live for Him 
and according to his priorities and according to his standards. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, Jesus died for us so, and here's the quote, so that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Inherent in that verse is the assumption that it is possible for us, even as Christians, to live for ourselves. Oh, the sadness to see Christians who just live for themselves instead of living for Christ, living for God. They just live for themselves. But Jesus purchased us with his blood so we should live for him. Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You really don't have the right to say, I I think I'll just live for myself. You and I really, as Christians, don't have that right. As believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to live to do the will of God. And Romans 12, 2 says, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says God's will for us is our sanctification or spiritual growth, spiritual development. Now Peter understood all of this, which is why he says here in verse 2 that we should live the rest of our lives for the will of God. Once we come to Christ, we spend enough time living for self, living for sin, living for others, we should live the rest of our lives for the will of God. If we don't, we're living in a self-imposed or self-accepted bondage. Now think about this. Jesus died to give us freedom to live for him. But when we live the way our sin nature wants us to live, or the way unsaved people want us to live, we are turning back to bondage. Beloved, do you understand or realize what a bondage it is to live contrary to your newness in Christ? That is, that is really a, a bondage. Why do we do that? It is so freeing to live according to the will of God. It's not, I, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's freeing. It's not easy because, one of the reasons why, is because we have so many people around us who pull us the other way. Peter, he was a realist. He understood that. So he says in verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. When Peter uses the term Gentiles in this verse, he is referring to people who don't know God. He is not talking about distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's using the term the same way Paul used it in 1 Thessalonians 4 5, where he speaks about the Gentiles who do not know God. So Peter is referring to unbelievers here in this verse. And what he says here in verse 3 is that we have spent enough time doing what unbelievers do and what they want us to do in life. He mentions six specifics. The first word is lewdness or debauchery, which refers to unbridled sensuality. The second word is lusts, which refers to an extreme desire 
for what is forbidden by God and forbidden by God for our own good. The third word is drunkenness, which needs no explanation. The fourth word is revelries or orgies. The fifth word is drinking parties, which means just what it says. The sixth word is uh, abominable idolatries, which is often at the root of or the context of all these other things. Let me explain. When people refuse to believe in the true God, they often put an actual substitute in his place or a mental substitute in their minds that prompts them to live this way or at least allows them to live this way in an an attempt to somehow uh, mitigate their conscience. It's interesting to note that three of these terms have sexual overtones and two concern indulgence in alcohol. Does that describe our society or what? This is the way many people in our world live, and this is the way people in our culture are encouraged to live. Just look at the encouragement that comes from television and movies and even from advertisements. So much of life for unbelievers revolves around drinking parties. That's life. That's their social life. Most people in our society who drink alcohol do not drink it as a beverage. They don't, in other words, they don't have a glass of wine with their dinner or a beer with their pizza. Some do, but most don't. They drink alcohol as a recreation or as an event or as a drug or as an escape. It's not a beverage for most. And that often results in the other sinful activities that Peter mentions here in this verse. That, as you well know, I'm I'm not telling you anything, that is the way many people live. And what Peter reminds us here is that they want us to live the same way. Again, I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say this. You live life. You live out there. You know, whether it's in school or work or in athletics, you know the people around you and, and, and how they want you to live. But Peter says here, whatever time we spent living that way was more than enough time. That's part of our past. And it needs to stay there as part of our past. However, sometimes it's difficult to keep our past in the past because people around us try to pull us right back into that same lifestyle. And that's why Peter adds verse 4. He says, in regard to these things... They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. We often talk about the trap of peer pressure when it comes to teenagers. And we warn teenagers in junior high and high school and college to be careful. Don't be, you know, pulled into peer pressure. Don't give into peer pressure. But, but beloved, don't be deceived into believing that teenagers are the only group of people to face peer pressure. We all face it in one way or another. It maybe takes a different form as we grow older in life, but we all face peer pressure. Grown-ups face peer pressure just as much as teenagers. And that is what Peter is describing here in this verse. It is not uncommon for unbelievers around us to think we are strange because of the way we live our lives or because of the way we don't live our lives. And it's not uncommon for some believers to malign us or make fun of us, or speak evil of us for not participating with us. 
Maybe it's to our faces. A lot of times it's maybe behind our backs, little jokes, comments about being, you know, prudish or being whatever. Now think about how ironic this is. Really, think about how ironic this is. They think, Peter is reminding us, they think we are strange because we don't run headlong into a lifestyle of reckless living. As Warren Wiersbe described it, quote, They do not think it strange when people wreck their bodies, destroy their homes, and ruin their lives by running from one sin to another. But let a drunkard become sober or an immoral person pure, and the family thinks he has lost his mind, end quote. That is very common out there. That perspective, that attitude, it's really warped. Which is why Paul says in Philippians 2.15 that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. A crooked and twisted generation. But that's the world in which we live. And sometimes we feel the pressure to conform or go along with them just, from, just so as to keep from being maligned or hassled or ridiculed or made fun of or, or whatever it is. They make us feel like we have to answer to them for what we do or why we live the way we live. But the truth of the matter is that they will someday have to answer to God. And that's why Peter adds verse 5. He says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter is saying here that all unbelievers are someday going to give an account to God. And when Peter says they are going to give an account to God, he doesn't merely mean that they will talk to God or talk with God about how they lived. He means they will be held accountable in judgment. They will be punished for how they lived. This is quite a contrast to how we, as believers, have been delivered from judgment. In John 5, 24, Jesus gave this monumental promise. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. Don't, what, don't miss what Jesus said there in that verse. He says that once we have believed, once we have trusted Him, once we have turned to Him, once we have received Him, whatever uh, phraseology or terminology you want to use, He says once that happens, we have already passed from death into life. It's a done deal. We'll never come into judgment. Now the Scripture does tell us that we will all stand, as Christians, we will stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, to have our lives evaluated for reward. But that's not the same thing as the kind of condemning judgment Jesus was speaking about in John 5.24. We will never face or come into that kind of judgment, but that is exactly what unbelievers will face. That's what Peter is saying here in verse 5. They may malign you, they may make fun of you, they may ridicule you, they may try to get you to come their way, but, verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We will never face that judgment, but that's exactly what unbelievers will face. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20 to see a description of it. The very last book of Scripture, the 20th chapter, 
This is the event to which Peter was referring there in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 4. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whom, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. In other words, they're, they're trying to get away. They, they want to get away. They, they, under, they, they understand the implication of what's about to take place here. But there was found no place for them. There's nowhere to run, no place to hide, no, no way to get away. No place for them. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is the resurrection of condemnation. You could call it that, the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus made it clear that every human being will someday be raised from the dead. Not just believers, every human being. In John 5, 28 and 29, he said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So this is the resurrection of condemnation. Those who are raised in verse 12 are the unsaved of all the ages. doesn't matter if they've lived here in the 21st century or if they lived back in the, the Middle Ages or if they lived back in Old Testament times. This is the unsaved of all the ages, and they will all be there. John says, the small and the great. In other words, the nobodies and the somebodies. They'll all be there. Every unbeliever who's ever lived. And these verses tell us they will be judged according to their works by the things that are written in these books. These books containing a record of their works, their lives. The clear implication of this text is that their names are not in the book of life. And that is why they will be judged according to their works by the things written in these other books. Every thought, every word... Every deed will be set forth to demonstrate that the sentence in the lake of fire is not excessive. It's not extreme. It's not uncalled for. No one will be able to say anything about this judgment in the sense of objecting to it or claiming it's unfair. The books are going to be open. It's, all going, to it's going to be all laid out there so that there will be no question, no room for objection. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. I think it's interesting that John specifically mentions the fact that the sea will give up the dead who were in it. He is emphasizing the fact that no matter how a person has died, or where his body is, in other words, whether a person died in an earthquake, died in an avalanche, died uh, in an explosion, died at sea, doesn't matter how a person has died, where his body is, or how far the body has disintegrated, God will resurrect it. God will raise it. No unsaved person will escape this resurrection and judgment. 
And everyone who stands at the great white throne will be cast into the lake of fire. Understand, this is not a judgment to determine who will go to heaven. No one at the great white throne will go to heaven. The reason they are judged according to their works is because their works will prove that they were never born of God. Also, their works will determine the degree of punishment they will experience. Jesus made it clear that judgment would be more severe to those who had more exposure to the truth and yet rejected it. God is a righteous God, a righteous judge. He will judge each of these individuals according to his or her works. Their works will prove they were never born of God. Their works will prove they deserve the lake of fire. Verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What does John mean by this is the second death? One man described it this way, quote, The formula is really quite simple. If you are born once, you die twice. But if you are born twice, you only have to die once. If you are born only once, that is physically, you die physically, and at the judgment you die eternally in the lake of fire. But if you are born physically and then born again spiritually, the only death you will experience is physical death, end quote. It's that basic. You either admit your guilt now and ask for a pardon on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, or you stand at this judgment and hear the sentence declared once and for all, guilty, condemned for eternity. Those are your options. There are only two. Those are the only two options. And verse 15 closes this description by saying, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The statement is simple in its expression. There is no unnecessary elaboration. There is no exaggeration. But the meaning of this one verse is utterly profound and abysmal. People will spend eternity in the lake of fire along with the beast, the false prophet, the demons, and Satan himself. They will remain there in outer darkness, in torment, in unspeakable sorrow, in anger, in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. It's impossible to comprehend. No other verse in the Bible is more horrifying than this brief verse. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The unsaved of all the ages will stand before God someday to give an account in judgment. And this is exactly what Peter is referring to in our text. Now let's go back there as we conclude. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4. So Peter says in verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then verse 6, he closes this paragraph by saying, For this reason, because there is a judgment coming, because unbelievers will face this terrifying judgment, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now what is Peter saying here? At first glance, it sounds like Peter is saying, 
the people are going to, <coughs> the people are going to get a second chance to be saved after they are dead. But the passage we just looked at, as well as many others, makes it clear that there is no such thing as a second chance. Scripture is abundantly clear on that. So what is Peter saying? What is Peter saying here? The way the NIV translates this verse gives us a clue. The NIV says, For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. In other words, Peter is not talking about preaching the gospel to the dead. He is talking about preaching the gospel to people when they were alive but are now dead. And he has a specific group in mind. What group of dead people is he referring to in this verse? He has in mind believers who were considered unworthy to live by other people. That is, believers who were deemed unworthy to live, who were judged according to men in the flesh. And the implication of this verse is that they were martyred. They were judged according to people that they aren't worthy to live, that they deserve to die. Remember, that is the context of this verse. The context is about suffering for our faith in Christ and even dying for it if need be. So here in this verse, Peter is saying of these believers who had the gospel preached to them, other people in society judge them not worthy to live and kill them or had them killed. They were put to death in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. In other words, they aren't really dead. Their bodies are dead. They're separated from their bodies, which is what death is. It's the separation of the material part of man and the non-material part of man. So their bodies are dead, but their spirit is alive with the Lord. That's why he says they were judged according to men in the flesh, but they live according to God in the spirit. Their bodies are dead, but their spirit is alive with the Lord. You see, this is exactly what the very first martyr in the New Testament understood. The first Christian martyr, Stephen. When Stephen was dying in Acts 7, he said in verse 59, just as his life was leaving his body when he was dying, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He clearly understood how it works. He understood that although he was judged according to men in the flesh... That is, those people there judged him not worthy to live, judged him worthy of death. That's why they executed him. That's why they stoned him. He was judged according to men in the flesh. Yet Stephen understood that his spirit would still be alive to go into the presence of the Lord. He knew he wouldn't go into soul sleep. He knew he wouldn't cease to exist. He knew that the moment he died, his spirit would still be alive and be with Jesus Christ. So that's what Peter is saying here. Because, because we know judgment is coming, verse 5. Because we know all unsaved people will be judged someday. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. That's the reason we preach to them. And even though they were judged according to men in the flesh to be put to death, they live according to God in the Spirit. So I ask you this morning, do you have that same assurance about your eternal destiny when you die? Do you have that assurance that Stephen had when he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit? There are really only two options. Here they are. You will go to be with the Lord forever when you die, 
or you will stand at the great white throne judgment to be cast into the lake of fire. Those are your two options. Where will you spend eternity? Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head, close your eyes here in the last two minutes that we have together, honestly ask yourself that question. <clears throat> Where will you spend eternity? Will you spend eternity with Jesus Christ or spend eternity in the lake of fire? This is, this is not scare tactic. This is, this is fact. This is what the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God teaches us. So here, today, face the reality. Where will you spend eternity? If you are not ready for death, if you are not ready to enter eternity, you need to humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before Jesus Christ. Call on Him. Tell Him you desire to repent of your sin, that you want to turn from your sin and turn to Him, and you want to be cleansed and forgiven. You want His salvation. You want to be changed. You want to become the man or the woman that, that he can make you to become. Tell Jesus Christ you want to know him and live for him and spend eternity with him. And if you are a believer, if you, you, you have absolute certainty that you know Jesus Christ, then let's not miss Peter's message to us in this text. That life in this world pulls us the wrong direction often. The peer pressure, the, the internal pull of our sin nature. But we spend enough time doing the will of the Gentiles. We, we spend enough life, however long that was, living for self or living for sin. Let's live the rest of our lives for the will of God. That's the way God has called us to live. And that's Peter's message to us, those of us who know Christ. Father, may we hear very clearly the message of this text, because it has a message for every one of us in this room. Wherever we're at spiritually, whatever our spiritual condition, it has a message for us. If we know Christ, then the message to us is live for Him. Live the rest of your life, however many days that God gives you. Live the rest of your life doing the will of God. And if you don't know Christ, someday you're going to give an account to Him, and you'll stand before Him and be judged. So there's a message for every one of us in this text. May we hear it, embrace it, and respond to it properly. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.